Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files. My name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming alive from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England, and completely and utterly surrounded by my stuff, including a bunch of off-the-shelf cold remedies. Here on my right is the great library of RPGs and my grognard files. I have a couple of back issues that I'm about to refer to, and here on my left is the ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Munro. I'll, uh, I'll just give it a tap. Ah, yes. This time she's appeared as Laura Bellows from Dracula AD 1972, otherwise known as the Satanic Rites of Dracula. For the second time on the bounce, the Eternal Champion makes this appearance as we're being satanic in this episode. We are looking at the Satanic Panic. More accurately, it should be referred to as the Satanic Panics, as according to our special guest, Joseph Laycock, there were three waves of the moral panic around Dungeons and & Dragons and role-playing in general, from the 1970s through to the 1990s. His book, Dangerous Games, examines the history and sociology of the moral panics. It's very good, and the best RPG fan study that I've read so far. We touched on this topic previously when we had the journalist and economist Tim Harford on the podcast. He spoke to us about how the private detective William Deere sensationalised the tragic story of James Dallas Edberg in the book The Dungeon Master. The Edberg case also inspired the 1982 made-for-TV film Mazes and Monsters, which was based on a novel. I'm joined in the room of role-playing rambling by our resident rules lawyer, Blythe. We've watched the film for the Groggle Box. We reflect that our interest in role-playing games back in the day was met with more of a milder bemusement rather than a panic. Perhaps it's because we were part of the Scarred for Life generation. See episode 54. Our parents were inured to the effects of devils on the books we were buying. It's a natural progression to go from horror bags and Dracula lollies to asking for RuneQuest's Cults of Terror for Christmas. We were relatively unscathed. However, distinguished member of the Grog Squad, Clarky the Cruel, a.k.a. Kihar, formerly of the Dissecting Worlds podcast, was a subject of controversy in his hometown back in the late 80s. He's here to tell his story and to tell us about his Doctor Who unit campaign, which he has put into the Appendix G. He has to use the safe word Fishfinger when things get too much. We've got a bit of closing time chatter before we head for the door. I'll be back at the end to say goodbye, but until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Open box! Joining me in the room of role-playing rambling is academic, gamer, and author of Dangerous Games, what moral panic over role-playing games says about play, religion, 
and imagine worlds. Joseph Laycock, hello there, Joe. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to this. So where in the world are you uh, beaming from? I am in Austin, Texas at the moment. And uh, you've got an unusual weather event today. That's right. I would normally be in San Marcos, Texas, teaching uh, classes at at university, but uh, the roads are all shut down today due to uh, freezing rain uh, all over the highways. So I'm I'm safe at home instead. Religious studies, isn't it, that you uh, teach there? That's right. Yeah, I'm a professor of religious studies. What's interesting is you produce this uh, book and you're a gamer. And uh, it's very much from the idea of a participant observer, because uh, normally these books are from people who know nothing about the hobby. Tell us something about your experience and how you got into the hobby, because you cover it really well in the book. Sure. So I, I grew up here in, in Texas in the, the 1980s, uh, playing mostly second edition Dungeons and Dragons. Texas is part of the, the Bible Belt. There's a big evangelical culture here. Uh, and so very early on, I encountered people who said, um, this is a satanic hobby, right? That step one is you start rolling some dice, and then step two or three is you begin worshiping Satan and committing suicide. And and as a young boy, this was kind of my first inkling that uh, adults act like they have all the answers and they know what they're talking about, but actually they don't, because how could anyone possibly think these things uh, about this game? Uh, and so this this book that I wrote after getting my my PhD and having studied uh, the sociology of religion is really an attempt to think about uh, out of all the social or political issues that conservative Christians could have been upset about in the 1980s, why focus on this fairly obscure uh, game that was being marketed uh, especially to children in the 1980s, right? And to, to gifted uh, uh, you know middle school and, and elementary uh, uh, school uh, children. So that's that was sort of what initially sparked the the idea for the book. And, and you're a gamer yourself. So um, how did you get into the hobby? Right. I, I think um, yeah, I started so young, it's almost hard to remember. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was marked early on as a, as a gifted child. I remember going at a very young age to a summer camp that was nominally for gifted children. Uh, this was something that everybody was was interested in. And, you know, I'm talking about very young children, maybe as young as five. But even if we didn't exactly know how to play Dungeons & Dragons, because the rules are quite complicated, especially in second edition, we had older brothers and things who had these books with these amazing pictures that we would bring to the camp and and, and look at. Uh, and, and eventually we kind of graduated from sort of half playing it uh, to actually understanding the the rules uh, and, and playing properly. Uh, and now there is a, a faculty game at Texas State University where, where we continue to play. Right. So he's still playing to this day because uh, we, we stopped playing at the end of uh, the 80s. And I know that you were uh, playing Vampire the Masquerade, weren't you, through the 90s? That's that's right. Uh, so as I got older, by the time I was in uh, high school, uh, White Wolf Games had produced uh, uh, the World of Darkness games, which were significantly sort of darker and grittier uh, than, than Dungeons & Dragons. And they had created uh, live-action role-playing games. So these were actually pl- uh, sort of acted out, uh, in a way, instead of played sitting around a, a table. And those went on at the local uh, uh, university in Austin. I think the games began at 8 p.m. and went until 2 a.m. <laughs> so you really did feel like a vampire by the time the, the, the game was over. And I was... Uh, you were supposed to be 18 to play. I had to lie. I was too young to play i was only 17 but hanging out with these college students dressed as vampires until 
uh, two in the morning, I, I felt really um, important. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like nobody else in my high school knows how cool I am or what I did this weekend, uh, which is interesting because I think a lot of people who uh, play these hobbies usually feel um, kind of socially uh, inferior to other people, but I felt very superior uh, having been up late with these college students. What struck me about your book, which is a really good um, sociology of the gaming hobby and uh, sets a context, is the, there isn't really a moral panic. There is actually three stages to it, as, as you describe it. So just uh, describe how, how you have uh, kind of framed this in the book. Sure. So my area of expertise within religious studies is a field called new religious movements. New religious movements includes groups that the media often refers to as cults. Uh, so this is a rather problematic category, but it can include any group uh, that the, the public or the majority is sort of afraid of or wary about or stigmatizes, either with good reason or not. Of course, some some religious groups actually are dangerous. Uh, others are stigmatized unfairly. But in the United States, uh, there was a real panic about these groups in the 1970s. And there were several uh, uh, factors in that. One was changes to immigration laws in the 1960s, which had allowed groups like the Unification Church, the so-called Moonies, to arrive, uh, the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, or the Harry Krishnas, to arise. And, and then these groups were uh, gathering baby boomer generation college students who were converting these religions. And at the same time, there was this discourse about brainwashing, which was a product of the mm-hmm. Korean War and, and sort of used to explain American prisoners of war who said they didn't want to come back to the United States, that they had uh, learned to love communism while uh, imprisoned in, in Korea. Uh, and so this, this notion formed that strange religions have the power to brainwash people and basically make them uh, almost mentally dominated uh, uh, by a by a leader, and so Dungeons and Dragons was published in 1974, and this panic over cults became the framework through which people interpreted this. And when they heard things like "there is a dungeon master who runs the game," uh, that was seen as a, a type of cult leader. Uh, and so the literature sort of uh, uses this this narrative of, of the cults and brainwashing to understand the game. By the 1980s, it was pretty clear that Harry Krishnas were not going to take over the United States, that these groups were not really a threat. Uh, But then we had moved into what's now remembered as the satanic panic. And this is the phase that you can see in media uh, uh, like Stranger Things. So these unusual religious groups at least existed. The satanic cults described in these conspiracy theories did not exist. Uh, And so one of the pieces of evidence used by the claims makers was this game is used to basically seduce children into becoming Satanists. And if you don't believe us, just look at the covers of these books. Look at how scary they are. They describe things like demons. Uh, they they talk about hell. And then the third phase of this uh, was in the 1990s. And by the 1990s, there was still a fear that adolescents were, were dangerous. But now there was this discourse of so-called super predators. Uh, and there was a book called Body Count, which basically said that the United States had raised a generation of adolescents that basically didn't have a conscience, that basically had to be uh, uh, sort of imprisoned and taken away from society. And this was a time when cities began passing curfew laws that people who were not 18 could not legally be on the streets after a certain hour uh, at night. Uh, in the 1996 presidential election, both candidates vow that they would protect the United States from the super predators. 
Uh, and so the panic about Dungeons and Dragons was was um, not as strong as it had been by the 80s, but now it fell into this narrative of uh, our adolescents are, are just sort of monsters. And so when the Columbine shootings happened in 1999, that sort of began the current era of, of mass shootings, one of the first things that was pointed to to explain why this happened was Dungeons and Dragons, right? That if a teenager did something inexplicably violent, this game must have something to do with it. So we're looking at one long panic, but the sort of mythology around the panic changes with the times. Yeah, and it usually does coalesce around an incident, doesn't it? So in that first stage, you know, the famous Dallas Egbert case was the focus of it. And and then in the in the eighties it's the um Irving case. I'm familiar with the Egbert case, but all the story around um, Bad was uh, fascinating now that emerged. Sure. So very briefly with, with Dallas Egbert, and it sounds like a lot of your listeners may already be familiar with this. Uh, this was a, a student who uh, uh, disappeared uh, in college. His parents uh, were, were wealthy and hired this very eccentric private detective uh, named William Deere, uh, who began researching this boy and realized that he'd been playing Dungeons and Dragons and also uh, was considered a, a prodigy, was um, you know designing computers and had started a, a college at only 16 and so forth. And he has a press conference and tells everyone, I think that this child has entered this sort of um, dissociative state where they believe that they are living in a fantasy game. And they went into the steam tunnels underneath the university uh, and are sort of wandering around somewhere thinking that they are, you know, a, a magic user or, or something like this. Uh, none of this was true. Uh, William Deere did not help uh, find this boy. This boy simply called his parents from New Orleans uh, and unfortunately did commit suicide not long after that. This boy um, was was gay uh, at a time when that was not at all acceptable in American society, uh, was manufacturing uh, drugs. Uh, so there were all kinds of uh, other factors, but everyone sort of homed in on Dungeons and Dragons. This is actually very good for sales of the game because rumors got out that this game is so uh, intense to play that it can cause literal sort of dissociative uh, uh, states. And this story that William Deere told everyone at this press conference became the basis of a novel called Mazes and Monsters that was adapted into a made-for-TV film uh, starring a young Tom Hanks. And so you can see Tom Hanks wandering around New York believing that he is a, that he is a cleric. Uh, the second case uh, occurred in Virginia in the 1980s uh, with a, a, a troubled young man um, named Irving Bink was his nickname, Irving Pulling. Uh, he committed suicide, and his mother, Patricia Pulling, uh, came to believe that he committed suicide because of playing Dungeons and Dragons, which he was playing as part of his honors uh, uh, English program. Uh, and so she started a group called Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons, uh, and really kind of led the charge in vilifying uh, uh, this game with a lot of, uh, frankly, dishonest propaganda, saying that the game was responsible for all sorts of suicides and deaths. And in the 1980s, she became uh, a, a sort of leading speaker of the satanic panic. So by the end of her career, uh, police would hold these seminars on so-called occult crime, and they would pay Patricia Pulling to come in and say basically untruthful information, misinformation about things like satanic uh, crime. So there was a 
uh, a newspaper interview I found where she said that 8% of the population of Richmond, Virginia are Satanists. And the reporter asked, how are you getting that number? Because that means there are more Satanists than there are Methodists or many other sort of mainstream churches. And she answered, well, 4% of the children are Satanists and 4% of the adults are Satanists. And that adds up to 8% uh, of, of the population. So she would say uh, uh, things like this all the time. But I think the appeal of her story came, uh, her, her appeal came to this, the story of I'm this bereaved mother, right? This game stole my boy from me. And, and that sort of uh, was more persuasive to people than any of these kinds of made up uh, uh, statistics. Uh, while researching this book, uh, I was able to find some more information out about what happened to Irving Pulling. Uh, I spoke to someone who who knew him and said that probably he only played Dungeons and Dragons for about five hours in his entire life uh, because there wasn't much time to do this. Uh, that the campaign had involved someone uh, cursing uh, his character with lycanthropy. And there was sort of the, the, the dungeon master had created this kind of prop where there's a, a ring poem about, uh, you know, in the full moon, you will become a, a slayer of men or something like this. And the the story that Patricia Pulling sort of wove out of this was uh, this game had basically mentally programmed my son to murder his entire family. And again, this goes back to the Korean War. A uh, product of the Korean War was the novel and film The Manchurian Candidate, where it's possible to program someone uh, with hypnosis to carry out a hypnotic assassination. And she said that instead of following through on this sort of suggestion that the game had had given him, uh, his only alternative was to commit suicide. And so, so really, she claimed, my son didn't commit suicide at all. My son martyred himself to save our family right from this 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 game um people who knew uh, uh bank pulling said that he was very troubled um that both of his parents were having affairs that he was angry at them uh and that he had shot himself using his mother's handgun uh on the front porch and sort of arranged this death scene in a way so that when his mother came home and came around the bend of their driveway she would find this uh, a, a scene. Uh, so it's understandable why uh, Patricia Pulling would prefer to believe this other story. Uh, the other detail was uh, the Committee for the Advancement of Role-Playing Games uh, got a copy of Bink's character sheet. And the second edition character sheet has a square where you can draw an insignia uh, of your character. Um, that had been erased, but you could see faint traces of a swastika uh, in that, that box. Uh, and Patricia Pulling uh, was was Jewish, uh, at least Jewish by by heritage, if not by a uh, uh, practice. Uh, so that suggests that there's there's this is a troubled young man, right? Uh, uh, prior to the the suicide, but uh, as I mentioned, the story became kind of foundational to uh, uh, this this sort of crusade uh, against Dungeons and Dragons that that took shape in the 1980s. Yeah, a, a remarkably well organized. Although short-lived campaign as well, I think that's what struck me about how you give an account of it. How it, as you say, infiltrated the uh, police and schools. That's right. One of the things that Patricia Pulling did, which again the Committee for the Advancement of Role-Playing Games uh, uh, uncovered, was she created these questions for interrogating young young men who played Dungeons and Dragons. And initially, the police denied that such a document existed, and it finally took a police officer who was. Uh, a, a gamer 
uh, to kind of leak this, to prove that it did in fact exist. But the questions, again, were both sort of tragic and, and laughable. But one of the questions was, have you ever read the Necronomicon? Right, which is any gamer knows is a fictional book. There are sort of hoaxes purporting to be the Necronomicon. Uh, another one said you have to identify who the dungeon master is. And again, this is going back to this notion of of the cult leader. But it said that you know if if the players say we take turns being the dungeon master, they're lying to protect the true dungeon master. Right, you have to you have to keep pressing until you figure out who it is. I have no idea uh, how often. This this list of questions was asked to, you know, young uh, suspects by police, maybe even uh, uh, never. But I cannot imagine being uh, arrested for some minor offense and then being uh, uh, asked by a police officer if I've read the Necronomicon and how confusing that must have been for for young people. It also, in uh, in the nineties, there was some cases as well, wasn't there? That the panic kind of coalesced around. That's that's um, right. So so by the eighties, Dungeons and Dragons had become a kind of go to excuse if there was any sort of violence that did not have a plausible uh, uh, explanation. And Patricia Pulling uh, was happy to go to murder trials as an expert witness. Uh, because expert witnesses are paid uh, very well for their services and and would say uh, in pretty much any crime, this person isn't responsible. This game sort of warped their their, their mind. Uh, and so in the 1990s, there was a case uh, that was called the Bellevue Massacre, which happened up in Washington State. Uh, and these two young men uh, committed a, a series of murders, basically attacked an entire family. And the defense that they attempted was, um, I didn't know what I was doing. I thought I was my character. One of them, their characters had the ridiculous name of Slicer Thunderclap and said, I, I, it wasn't me who did this. It was Slicer Thunderclap sort of taking over uh, uh, my mind. Uh, and then after a jury did, did not buy that, the Dungeons Dragons defense never, ever worked. It never got anyone off of, uh, uh, of a crime they had committed. Uh, the defendant admitted, of course, Dungeons and Dragons had nothing to do with this, but I, I had nothing else that I could I could do to try to uh, exonerate myself. Uh, so those kinds of talking points and arguments continued throughout the, the 1990s. Yeah, and, and you, you give a good account of, um, as you said, this uh, idea of uh, super predators and how the world of darkness kind of um factored into that. that that's right i mean gary gygax and, and david arneson tried very hard to uh, uh make a game that would sort of stave off these accusations of being uh dark and satanic at one point they experimented with a a, a set of guidelines that that said things like basically evil cannot win <laughs> in dungeons and dragons right the, the good guys have to always win and so forth um, and the, the World of Darkness game was started in 1991 when there was there was less pressure on them uh, uh, from these Christian groups. And also they were marketing their game to the college students. They were marketing to a very different uh, clientele. But they decided to have much darker games uh, based largely on um, the, the vampire fiction of, of Anne Rice. And so they really leaned into this is, a, this is sort of a dark uh, a scary world. It's a dangerous world. Things like uh, uh, guns and murder and drug abuse and even sexual abuse uh, are going on uh, uh, everywhere. Uh, but it did seem to sort of strangely mirror the narrative of the super predators, which was this idea that our, our society has fallen. Our society has become 
uh, uh, decadent and, and amoral. So in a strange way, and by the way, in the 1990s, crime rates were falling in every city in America. <laughs> so it was not like we were living through this terrible uh, uh, crime wave. It was quite the opposite. Uh, so you had, in a way, uh, two kind of fantasies of a, of a dark, uh, failed uh, American civilization, one going on as a fantasy in the world of darkness, and then another one being discussed uh, uh, by politicians. And uh, going back to Hansen and uh, Gagax, you make the point, don't you, that in the context of their generation, wargaming and playing games was a way of uh, responding to Vietnam and creating a, a safer environment for um, their imaginations to, to construct a reality. So this the this 1970s are remembered as an era of great cynicism uh, when Americans sort of lost faith in all of their institutions because of the Vietnam War, which Americans were watching every night on television and most Americans could not understand what we were doing over there. In addition to that, you had the Watergate scandal, which caused Americans to lose faith in the government and the presidents. You had the shooting of protesters uh, at Kent State University. Uh, so there was this real melange of, of cynicism. And I think one outcome of that was an idea to escape into a kind of imagined past. So while this bad stuff was happening, you had uh, the beginning of Dungeons and Dragons. You had the beginning of Renaissance festivals, right, where people would uh, uh, act like they lived. Well, they would say is the medieval, the Middle Ages as they should have been. So these people were not necessarily detailed historians, but they wanted to kind of escape from a, a contemporary civilization. And in some of the, the discourse that I found from the 1970s, one of the discussions of Dungeons and Dragons was, can we make rules for guns in a, in a fantasy world like Dungeons and Dragons? And, and one person wrote back and said, absolutely not. I see guns every night when I turn on the news and watch soldiers in Vietnam. I want a game that is as far removed from that. Uh, as as possible. Uh, so I think for a lot of people, that was what was fueling this escape into fantasy, into reading Tolkien, which was very popular beginning in the 1960s and so forth, uh, was a kind of politics of nostalgia and, and a hope to kind of escape from, uh, escape from modernity, as it were. Yeah. And you um, extend this into this idea of uh, you mentioned a, a, a sacred canopy. So uh, you extend this, um, and a thesis that actually, um, far from being satanic activity, it's actually a very religious experience. Uh, so, you know, a dirty secret of religious studies is that we don't actually know what religion is. <laughs> you know, we know what Christianity is and Islam is and so forth. But as far as what actually makes something a religion or not, there's many different theories. And that's part of the fun of being a religious studies professor is you have this different toolkit of, of theories that you can define uh, a religion with uh, a theorist who's not very popular anymore, but who I use in the book uh, is Mircea Eliada. Uh, and Eliada believed that religion is about, in essence, nostalgia, right? An idea that uh, the world that we live in today is sort of um, very confusing and not very satisfying to live in. But at some point in the past, there was a golden age, right? And if we can sort of somehow return ourselves to that time, uh, uh, we will be we will be happy. And Eliada believed that that's what religious ritual was doing, that when a community gets together and they hold a sacred ritual, they are making their sacred time sort of present, at least temporarily. So Eliada would say that when 
Christians enact the Eucharist, they are sort of ritually connecting to the time of Jesus and, and the Last Supper, and that that kind of experience is is nourishing. So I think this is an interesting framework for thinking about uh, role-playing games where you have a group of people and they have some kind of imagined world that is maybe not better than our world, but sort of more more meaningful, more exciting, has kind of higher stakes. And through this kind of ritualistic behavior, and it's ritualistic in the sense of it has you know, rules and protocols that are different from our ordinary uh, uh, world, they're able to create this kind of intense uh, experience. So my argument is not that Dungeons & Dragons is a religion, but if you compare these two things, you maybe notice and appreciate things about what happens when you play Dungeons & Dragons that you, you wouldn't maybe notice unless you were comparing it to a religious ritual. It certainly helps to explain um, the phenomenon that I've experienced over the last five years of creating a podcast and uh, building a community of uh, players from the 80s and the idea of a collective nostalgia and rediscovering that nostalgia through uh, having uh, mini conventions and playing games together uh, and restoring some of those connections we had when we were younger uh, has a resonance to me using that kind of analogy that you give. I think the human beings are sort of hardwired for community uh, and that you know, our, our ordinary daily interactions with each other uh, are kind of focused on means and ends, right? We are customers and consumers most of the time. Uh, and so we need some other mode of interaction, whether that's a religious community or um, athletics or, or, or something like role-playing games uh, to kind of bring about that, that, that different uh, set of interactions. Uh, and so one of the, the sets of theories I looked at a lot in the book is ludology or the study of play. Uh, and, and arguments that sort of play is very important for uh, generating human communities and also for generating uh, a, a culture. Uh, so this is something, again, that we see in both role-playing games and also in, in religious communities. And what about the context of now? Do, do you think that there is potential for more uh, moral panic because um, the role-playing hobby is probably as mainstream now as it's ever been? Uh, do you think that there's still potential for um, a moral panic to emerge? I mean, on the one hand, I look around and I think um, I can now watch all kinds of celebrities play Dungeons & Dragons on YouTube. Uh, the, the sort of profile of a gamer has changed completely, where in the, the 80s it was sort of socially, primarily socially awkward boys, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and now I teach at a college and I have seen uh, very, you know, socially... Uh, uh, um, advanced, um, conventionally attractive sorority girls saying, you know, I've, I've thought about playing D&D, everyone else is doing it, and I don't want to be left out. Uh, that, that could be more different uh, uh, from the 80s. Uh, at the same time, as a religious studies scholar, I'm very aware of discourse within uh, evangelical communities, and I'm still surprised when I see uh, uh, claims that this is a, a satanic uh, uh, game. I have seen uh, videos of uh, conservative Christians sort of walking through a bookstore uh, and, and pointing at uh, all the books on witchcraft and, and saying, you know, and this is this is right next to the books about Dungeons and Dragons. And, and what further evidence do I need that it's evil if it's near uh, the Dungeons and, and, and Dragons aisle? Uh, and I'm also very concerned about um, the rise of things like QAnon, right? QAnon and claims that 
Tom Hanks, who I already mentioned in this interview, is uh, herding children to uh, harvest adrenochrome from from their blood. Uh, these theories are ridiculous. Adrenochrome is uh, can be cheaply manufactured in a laboratory for a few pennies. Um, but, but this shows that there's still really an appetite for these kinds of um, really dark uh, uh, fantasies. And, and some people have even said uh, the participation of QAnon on the Internet actually resembles a game. Uh, it has been kind of gamified where people will say things like, uh, you know, several items in this this furniture catalog are actually codes for trafficking children. Can you figure out which items in the catalog are are, are, are secret codes? Uh, and so one of the conclusions I have in, in the book is that I think people have this need to live in a more exciting world. I wish, I wish that all of these people playing um, the QAnon game right now, sort of building up these horrible conspiracy theories, would play Dungeons and Dragons instead. <laughs> right? Because then <laughs> yeah. they could get the sense of being a crusader against evil uh, in a way that is that is healthy and doesn't result... Uh, and, and actual violence, which unfortunately uh, things like QAnon is is contributing to right now. Well, thank you, Joe. And and before we go on a lighter note, so tell us about the uh, the current game that you are playing. Well, we we finished a game that took uh, uh, over two years to to complete. It was re- uh, led by a, a DM from the the history department. Uh, it was great having inner faculty game. Actually, we had a physicist who was our wizard and so forth, and a. Uh, uh, my wife wanted to play a dwarf uh, a priest, and so I, I, I made a dwarf uh, a fighter who was her bodyguard, uh, and that was a fun fun game that lasted for for about two years. Uh, and now um, I've been asked to to DM the the next game, and uh, we decided to make a game with uh, with with monks. The monk <laughs> class has always been this very strange uh, thing; it never really fit into the world. So we decided to make an entire campaign where. Uh, everyone must be a monk, and oh, so it's brilliant. going to be a kind of a mashup of sort of a, a, a you know tropes from kung fu movies and things like that. And uh, we'll we'll see if people have fun with that or not. That sounds excellent. Well, thank you very much, Joe, for spending the time with us. That's great. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you, Krogopop. Welcome to the room of role playing rambling. I've got Blythe with me. Hello, Dirk. And the weeks are off. <laughs> I've kind of forgotten why we say that. Now. Where's the wigs? It's wigs. Is our wigs off that we're not in a pub? Yeah, I think. Or it is it is. the other way? Around? I think we put wigs on because of going into a pub. Yeah, you would put a wig on because you're in a public space. Space. space you, that's you'd the wear idea, your wig, yeah. wouldn't you? Like you're but, going out. And we haven't been to the pub for a while, have we? I mean, no, no, it's overdue. So <laughs> there's no there's no pub noise. In yeah. fact, it's very quiet in this store cupboard. Very eerily quiet in the cupboard. The, the store cupboard at work. You might hear the distant rumble of air conditioning. Last last <laughs> time, I turned it off, right? Yeah. Which is a cardinal sin, isn't it? Touching the air conditioning yeah. in this building. Did you get in trouble? Well, I turned it off. Mm. And apparently, it affects the third floor. Did you turn the whole town, yeah. the whole town hall? <laughs> Oh, like, building off! I came in, and there were three blocks, you know, mm. with spanners on belts and three of them. Yeah, the tiles were off the. Uh, the and he said, "Have you reported the problem with the air conditioning?" <laughs> and I went, "No, no, 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 not me. No." Yeah, apparently, me switching it off 
cocked it all up. So what? So you broken it? I broke it. Just you, I, you didn't say to the three blocks. <laughs> I haven't touched it, but looking at this, I think it's switched off. I think someone, some idiot, switched it off. But it was worse than that. By switching it off, you broke broken it. Broken it. Yeah, I've broken it. You had to replace something. I, I can't be me. They can't put it's the finger on me. Can't put. How the sensitive are these things? <laughs> anyway, enough of that. We're here to talk about the moral panic, the satanic panic, mm. the how they see us, isn't it? That's what it is, really. Yeah. How the others see how us. How the others see us. Yeah. It's, yeah. How they view us as role players. Yeah. Or did. Or maybe still do. We're going to talk about mazes and monsters, mm. but before we do that, it might be worthwhile just thinking about our own memories of satanic panic. Because I can't remember very much. I can't remember it being much of an issue. No, I don't think it was. I think we wanted it to be, because I quite like the idea of being seen as a Satanist. But I don't think people did. No. I don't think people did. I think there was a little bit of... People looked at people looked at you in a funny way. They definitely thought you were strange if you played role-playing game. That was my memory of it, the, the view that you were... It was a really weird thing to do. And I know... To some extent, that still exists a little bit. There's, there's, it's still in some circles viewed as a strange thing to do. You know, you get the old, oh, would you dress up? You know, you yeah. get that, don't you? I still yeah. get that dress up. To which I say, yes, I do. I say, I do now. I say, I wear a wizard's hat. They don't care. Do you remember in English? Yeah. You had to do a talk, didn't you? I think Americans would call it a show and tell thing, didn't they? Yeah, you had yeah. to do a talk. And I did it one year on role-playing games. And I still have a vivid memory of how dreadful an experience that was where I was explaining role-playing games to the class of the English teacher and they all it was a sea of confused faces yeah they, I don't think any of them really understood what Earth I was talking about yeah that's probably more to do with me than them but of course it was that problem wasn't it that, to me it all made, now at that point it all made sense didn't it we've been yeah. playing these games for a few years and it was all dead straightforward it's obvious what you do but I remember being looked at in a really strange way and there'd be an awkward silence at the end of the um, the class and it was just like a weird experience. So I think it was more about being viewed as very, very strange, as if what you were doing yeah. was very strange. Not so much the moral panic that you hear about in other other people's kind of telltales, don't they? Particularly in yeah. America, I think, yeah. with the moral panic. I don't think it was a moral panic, I think which is. a what on earth are you doing? Yeah. You weirdo. Certainly made it to a panic, that, is it? It's like. It's not a panic, it's just <laughs> mildly puzzled. Yeah. A, a mildly puzzled. But so that's it. That's the I, end I of wish, But I wish, I wish they did. I wish they had thought I was a Satanist. That would have been fantastic. I mean, so exciting, wouldn't it? But they didn't, I don't think they did. There's two incidents <laughs> I can think of where we touched on the. Uh, satanic panic and a moral panic. The first one, and I think I've recounted both of these tales previously. Uh, the first one was when I'd started the postal game. It coincided with me ordering some books from a book club, a, a mysteries book club, mm. and they arrived at me nan's, and they were like tarot cards and um, some, you know other weird things, and all these uh, envelopes started coming through the door as well daily. And me, and me dad said, are you starting a cult? <laughs> and that, I, I've told that story before. Yeah. Um, and the other time was the time when we were at college together, media studies course. Mm. And we were interviewed, weren't we? 
about role-playing games. Oh, we were, weren't we? Ray yeah, Godwin. Sure. Yeah. It, it, he professed to be interested in our hobby and to discover more, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he wasn't, though. No. We were taken in a bit, weren't we, by that? Yeah. yeah. Keen, keen, foolishly keen to talk about it to anyone who would listen. Yeah. That was the thing, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. We do, uh, we do, uh, yeah, uh, have swords and uh, little <laughs> battles and... Uh, <laughs> We had this, and what they, what he did, Ray Godwin, is he put a red filter on us. Did a thing called Devil's Games, where he cuts, didn't he? Cut to yeah, people doing mazes and monsters kind yeah, of thing, yeah, didn't he? Yeah. Where they were going into like a mysterious wasteland. Yeah. While we were saying, yeah, and then we, yeah, you can die. Yeah, yeah you can yeah. actually die. Yeah, that's right. He did it. it, it to be clear, this was like a college project, wasn't it? Yeah, so it wasn't yeah. a thing that was broadcast. That gets to the heart of it, doesn't it? That people thought, generally people thought, you were, it was an odd hobby. They didn't quite understand it. Oh, they thought it was silly. They thought it was daft. People thought it was daft, didn't they? So it was a range of things like that. People didn't really think you were, you were a threat or anything like that or in danger in some way. But that, college project sort of tapped into the way the media wanted to portray it like that didn't they yes the media wanted to portray it like that even though most people didn't view it like that yeah ignore this it's a rug covering a hole so mazes and monsters i seem to remember that we watched this at your house um i think i can't remember whether it was a planned viewing or whether your mum came in and, oh, they're talking about the games you play. I think it was planned. I think it was a planned viewing. Uh, was it either on video or was it on the telly? It was on the telly, I think. Telly, yeah. I think it was a planned thing. We we knew about Mazes and Monsters. My, my memory of it is we knew about it and we knew that it was part of this kind of satanic panic thing. So we watched it. In, with, with a kind of a, a sort of severe judgment, didn't we? We say, "Oh wow, we'll see what this rubbish is," you know, yeah. that kind of thing. And it is, let's face it, it is rubbish. Yeah, it is rubbish. But yeah. perhaps for different reasons than <laughs> the reasons. So I've never seen it twice. I've seen, I saw it then, and we rewatched it. So I've never seen it yeah. in between time for good reasons because it's rubbish. But yeah, we I think we watched it um, with a view to saying, "Oh well, this, this film's all about this satanic panic." Again, going back to what I said earlier, that the idea that the media was going to, was portraying it like this in this really negative way, and this Mazes and Monsters was all part of that. Yeah. And I think uh, I got the book from the library. It must have been after seeing it. Uh, and I think I just came out of that uh, desire just to read about it because, it, you know, as we said before, you couldn't really find a lot of information about uh, role-playing games. So... In um, the library, they only had um, two things. They had Maze's Monsters. They had um, the Holmes book on role-playing games, which I used to take out, but it had like a horrible smell. Just a smell. You know those some of those books that smell of sick? You yeah, know. we've been borrowed by the people. What have they done? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So rather than have that one, I read uh, Maze's and Monsters. And it felt um, it felt pretty lame at the time. Mm. But I was kind of caught up with the uh, idea, trying to work out what kind of game it was and working out whether it was a real thing that you could buy and that yeah. kind of thing. Well, I remember when we, I think when we watched it 
the first time we were quite indignant about it and quite annoyed about it. So there is a scene, for example, I think we're annoyed about it at two levels. One, because we watched it, when we originally watched it, we took it or interpreted it that, oh, I see. So if you play role, what you're saying here, filmmakers, is if you play role-playing games, you'll be driven insane and really will think that you're uh, a cleric. Because it's a cleric as well, isn't it? <laughs> Tom Hanks, is he's the one who goes mad and he thinks he's a cleric he's a real cleric. I rest my case. It's a cleric. It's always the cleric in it. Terrible. But there was that there was that side of it, I think, where we thought, well, it's uh, this terrible film is portraying it in that way. And the other issue, I think, was sometimes when they were playing the game, which isn't really like a role-playing game, we'd look at it and think, what are they playing? Yeah, what, what are they doing? Because there's a scene where he says, oh, you come to a pit. And the guy, there's a guy who wears funny hats, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. He says, well, we'll oh, come my, on to my bit, character yeah. jumps into the pit. And then he said, the games master says, oh, well, it's full of spikes. And you die. And they all go, oh, this is terrible. He's yeah. died. And you think, what's this bullshit? Let's <laughs> do play it like that. And I think, I remember sitting there in my mum's front room thinking, what are they doing? You don't do it like that. I mean, not only were you criticise, unfairly criticising the games, but you're actually portraying them. That's not what you do. Yeah, you don't even do that. Where's the rolls? Where are the hit points? Where's all the, the I stuff? I think you'll find that uh, Amazing Monsters is an early example of uh, an indie game, uh, <laughs> narrative indie game. Yeah, it's like seven three second edition. No one rolls the dice because no one knows what the hell they're doing. <laughs> is that? Is, is it that? <laughs> okay, it's one of those. It's one of those. <laughs> yeah, the the book is by uh, Rona Jaffe. I suppose it's in that tradition of the 70s thrillers like Michael Crichton and mm. uh, Robin yeah. Cook. Those are ripped from the headlines type things. Yes. Isn't yeah, it? Yeah. You yeah. know, they took the um, yeah. uh, Dallas Egbert case and turned it into yeah. a story. And But she's like, her, her background was lifestyle magazine. She wrote for Cosmo. So... And you can see that in it, can't you? You can see yeah, yeah. that depiction of New York middle classes. Yeah, you know, that's it, isn't it? it? It's essentially the plot is some college kids who, who come across as quite wealthy. I mean, most of them look like they're about 36. Yeah. <laughs> but they're quite wealthy college kids as well, aren't they? Yes. They, they are, and, and, and they by, by that... anyone's standards, you know, they, they're like, uh, like you say, a cosmopolitan kind of wealthy college kids who play this game. And, um, and the hint that they are geniuses. Yeah, they're that, all very clever and successful, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, that, you know, really, you should be going to MIT. Yeah, they, that's right. They're yeah. going to this uh, fictional college out of town, yeah. unspecified. Which age. leads to a very funny scene, actually, isn't it, where they, they go to see Tom Hanks, who's, who's gone mad, um, and the three of the other three are in the car. They talk about their their futures that they're planning about being a famous writer or a famous movie director. It's ironic that those three actors never heard of them again. The one who really became famous is the mad cleric. John Hanks, <laughs> there you go. How ironic. Quite yeah. a funny scene that, I think. But but yeah, they, that, that's the the way it's kind of depicted and that they play they play this game, don't they? And and then eventually they decide to go LARPing, don't they? Well, yeah. well, they, not, they don't refer to it as LARPing, but they decide to go LARPing in a cave and do it and, and dress up, wear funny hats, dress up yeah. um, and do that. And that 
seems to be, the, the film seems to imply that that's what drives Tom Hanks over the edge into this kind of delusional state where he thinks he is this cleric looking for something called the Great Great Hall, isn't it? There's some yeah, and it's great. We it, it, perhaps go into a bit more detail of it, but I think you know we both concluded after seeing the film and me returning to the book that it's not really a moral panic at all, is it? No, it is trying to say something about self-actualization yeah. and the fact that if you are if you've got everything provided for you and all you've got is your own mm. self-identity self-advancement um it is going to be appealing that these games are very absorbing yeah and it's a way of realizing and creating agency for yourself um but also can there's a form of madness if you become self obsessed and well it's uh, it does say those kind of things, but I think you're doing it too much of a favor there really. <laughs> really? I'm honest with you I think you you you're giving it too much credit i I don't think it really does to some extent, but really what it's about is someone's trauma and mental breakdown, so Tom Hanks's character has this issue, doesn't he, where his brother. His older brother, is it an older brother? Brother, he's gone missing. Gone missing. He? He's, he says his story at the beginning where the older brother, uh, who was called Hall, his first name was yeah, Hall, Hall, yeah, um, disappears. It, one day he just ups and goes and they don't know where he is. And this has been very traumatic for Tom Hanks' character. Yeah, and, and it, it appears in his dreams, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, Um Down the barrel of a gun like James yeah. Bond, yeah, doesn't it? Right, yeah. But in a in yeah. jogging bottom. Yes, yeah. so yeah. He, he, go- <laughs> <laughs> he goes looking for this great hall. And it obviously is his brother. He's looking for his brother, but it's all got confused and the game's yeah, yeah. kind of... But but you sort of think, well, it is a dreadful film, but from a production point of view, it's yeah. NAF, NAF soundtrack, some NAF acting, NAF script, rubbish. But all it really seems to be, re-watching it now compared to when we watched it as, as kids, you look at it and think, as, as you rightly said, the game's not... The game's neither here nor there, really. It's just about someone's breakdown, and the game is is like a a way of him dealing with it in some way. That's yeah. essentially it's about trauma, mental illness, and that that's it. That's yeah. what it's really about. It doesn't really criticise. Well, it <laughs> it does criticise the games. Right, it's kind of funny scene, isn't it? Because the, there's a the guy who plays the mayor in Jaws is in it. Yeah, he is, isn't he? Yeah. He's in it. And he's more, he's more worried about these games than he is about a killer shark. <laughs> so he's got his priorities wrong to start with, hasn't he? Yeah. He's quite happy to open the beach in Jaws, but he's worried about kids playing a game. <laughs> you, need, you need to reevaluate that. But anyway, <laughs> but there's some funny scenes where he does he play? He's a journalist, isn't he? Is he a policeman? He's a policeman. A journalist. He's a policeman. I'm, I'm not sure. It's not. It's not quite clear that. Yeah. But what what happens in it is, it's almost like they forget about the idea that these games are sinister and a bad influence. It doesn't really push that idea at all. But every now and again, they have to shoehorn it in, don't they? So there's a scene where the, the mayor from Jaws says to this lad, these games you play, poisoning people, stabbing people, killing people, and, and the bottom of the guy says, yeah, they're just games. And, and he's, the mayor from Jaws says, are they? Are they? And it cuts to another scene. As if they've shoehorned that in. Because at some point during the shooting of the film, they've thought, 
we're not we're not really pushing the idea of these games are sinister, are we? We need to put a scene and get the mayor from Jaws in to, to say these games are dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> and it's faintly ridiculous. And there is there is something to do with the pace in the film because there is quite a bit of quite a bit of filler in it. And I think it, it, the guy who directed it, uh, that Stephen Hillard Stern, he was like a, just a television movie director. It's quite a perfunctory, isn't it? How it's done. Yeah. And I, I watched the Blu-ray version. Mm. And it's really dark. You can't really see what mm. was uh, going on. And um, so you're right. It is by any measure. Uh, a terrible film. Yeah, yeah. But I do think the novel is trying to get at something a little bit more. Yeah. Maybe uh, it's a good film trying to get out. I don't yeah. Know. It could be, but... Yeah. I did afterwards think, maybe because it had Tom Hanks in it, I did think, I wonder what Steven Spielberg would make of this. Because yeah, it is yeah. his kind of thing of, uh, you know, a fantasy and the, the line, the distinction yeah. between fantasy and reality blaring. And, and, uh, and i tell you what's an inter- I thought about watching it. I thought about Stranger Things and how that's an interesting development, isn't it? That Stranger yeah. Things, they play D&D and they, the kids in Stranger Things interpret this world through D&D, don't they? Yeah. Uh, but but it's not viewed as madness. It's viewed as obviously it's a science fiction thing where there really are monsters. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of interesting split, isn't there, between th- this film amazing monsters about role playing, but actually someone's gone mad. There are no real monsters. He's just got mad. Yeah. And Stranger Things, where they play D and D, and in a way that fantasy world is reflected in the real world. Yes, as yeah. a real thing. There yeah. is a, there is a demagogue, as in there is this a terrible monster. Yeah. So. It's odd, isn't it, that that's a modern take on D and D. Is a much more is positive the right word? I don't know, but less judgmental view of D and D. Yeah. Uh, whereas Mazes and Monsters is trying to be judgmental. Although, I mind you, I don't think it really is. No. I think we viewed it that way as kids. I think we thought this is terrible. What are they saying? Yeah. But when you watch it again with an adult eye, they're not. I think they want to say that it's a terrible game. But they don't really achieve it because no. it doesn't come across like that no, at all, does it? Doesn't. Let's go into like a bit more detail. I don't want to go blow by blow with this. Good. If you want to listen to a commentary, you get the Blu-ray. It's got Scott Darwood from Good Friends of Jackson Alliance in Steph Skarkowski and uh, the guys from How We Roll podcast oh, right. doing a commentary oh, okay. on it. Yeah. So they'll do a much better job than... Mind you, I have to watch it again, don't I? <laughs> yeah. Threes. Threes one, two, man. You're pushing it. You're, you're pushing it. <laughs> I just wanted to talk about that setup and the characters now they're introduced and the actual game. And then we could just talk about some of the incidents yeah. that lead it, you know, yeah. that, uh, it goes through. So the, the, the thing is that you get an insight into this uh, world that they come from, don't mm. you, of uh, New York and... Yeah. Um, the first character we meet is wearing a, a German helmet with a spike. Yeah, what, what yeah. What do you call those? I do not, what German helmet with a spike. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, some war game will write in and tell us. Yeah. I, I don't know what they're called. But anyway, yeah, he is, yeah. And he, he's, a, he's a character who, he's, he's not the games master, is he? But he seems the keenest on 
the whole thing. He's the convener, isn't he? He's the convener. He's, yeah. he, he's a bit yeah. like me, isn't he? A bit obsessed yeah, and yeah, a bit yeah. like, yeah. right, come on, what, what, when, we, when we're playing. You wear funny hats as well. Yeah. <laughs> I wear funny hats. You like yeah. a funny hat, don't you? Yeah. Know? People yeah. make a great big deal about the number of hats he wears because he wears a different hat for There's a different scene. hat in every scene, yeah. But there's only five. I got counted five. There's only five hats. Yeah, that, that's not that's not a lot of hats, really, because they kind of. It's not a lot of hats, but some of them are questionable. I mean, the Ger- I mean, the <laughs> German German army on the spy is clearly saying, uh, "I'm an eccentric, I'm eccentric." Yeah. Right? Fair enough, you're eccentric. And then I think there's a there's another scene where he's wearing a cowboy hat. Yeah. And you think it's America? People wear cowboy hats, yeah. so that's not that weird. A pith helmet as well. There's, yeah, there's a pith helmet. They're all out of the sixth century. There's one who's wearing a builder's helmet. He's wearing a yellow builder's yeah. helmet. That just looks rubbish because that's like, that's not that eccentric. That just no. looks like you, you trying to be st- the, stole it from a building site or something. Trying to do a one man tribute act to uh, the village people. <laughs> it's like a bad, bad tribute act to the village people. German First World War soldier, builder. No, maybe it's like a, a, a village people prototype. <laughs> they didn't. Never got. Never got. Never got off, off the ground. But JJ's conditions are that his mother is a frustrated Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen. Yes, she? she redecorates his room all the time, doesn't yeah. she? And she's turned his at the start. She's turned his room in what can only be described as a public convenience. Yes, tiled it all, hasn't she? Yeah. I mean, it's a bit rich, isn't it, to say? A that, bit rich, a lot rich. Well, it's very rich to do it. <laughs> but it's a bit rich to start suggesting later on, Tom Hanks, these games have driven Tom Hanks mad. <laughs> and his mum's clearly mad as well, isn't she? I mean, yeah. She's tiled his room. And then when he goes back later, she's changed it again. Yeah. Have you have you ever tried tiling a bathroom? <laughs> Let's get Eddie on here. Let's get Ed from his shed, because he's a man, as we know, who tiled his own bathroom. And nearly, nearly drove him insane. <laughs> Never mind a great hall and mazes and monsters. Tiling bloody room drives you insane. Yeah. yeah, when we see the same room later, it's been turned into like a, a 40s theme pub, hasn't it? Or something with like yeah, yeah, yeah. director's yeah. chairs and things like that, yeah. Yeah. So he, he, that, that's J, JJ character. Yeah. He, he's the one who is the influencer. Yeah, yeah. And then there's, um, I don't know his name. But he has like a. He looks like Fred from Scooby Doo. He does, yeah. He's got I don't very, know his name, but he looks like Fred from Scooby Doo. Got a very solid um, blonde fringe, solid doesn't blonde he? Hair, yeah. yeah. And then there's Kate. Kate. Who looks old enough to be the mother's. Old enough to be mother? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she does, doesn't she? She's got a, a, jo- a journey from Happy Days thing going on, but yeah. a bit older. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Older journey. And when we're introduced to Robbie, yeah. it's through his parents. His dad's very strict. Dad's very strict and mum has a drink problem. Yeah. You know, and of course we all wonder why. Why does she have a drink problem? But of course later on we find out about the missing brother. Yeah. It makes sense, doesn't it? All yeah. right. I think okay. she has a line that says, it's like something from the 40s, like, and that's why I drink that's in the why, day. That's why I drink. Yeah, that's right. Something to do with him. That's why I drink, you know. Okay. <laughs> Justification for I, it. I made a note of that. Made a note of that excuse. Yeah. <laughs> I used that one. <laughs> and so these people converge at this fictional university mm. on the edge of town. Unspecified. We don't know. We don't know where it is, do we? No. Could be New York, could be New England. Could it's be got England. that kind of New Englandy kind of yeah. thing going on, hasn't it? But you know. But with a mine right next to it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Some caves next to it were 
you could just go in, apparently, yeah. and get lost. Yeah. Yeah. And really, so, really film about the dangers of potholing. Yeah. If you're honest, that's one of the issues. <laughs> potholing is the yeah. health and safety, yeah. And so they, they come together and they have this game. They, they put a notice on the... Mm. And he doesn't want to do it, does he? Uh, Tom Hanks, Robbie. No, he's done it before, hasn't he? It, yeah. an allu- they kind of allude to the idea or suggest that he's done it before and it, it's landed him in trouble because his dad says on the way in, doesn't yeah. he? Oh, none of those stupid games, you know. Yeah, and we've all been there, haven't we? You've all, all been there. there. Yeah. He's probably, you know, missed a few exams or something. Yeah, like yeah. 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 But anyway, he, he reluctantly... But he makes a mistake of telling him that he's ninth level. That's right. Yeah, there's this discussion about, oh, you're ninth level too. You're ninth, ninth level? Ninth level. There you go. Yeah. yeah. We don't know what that means. but Well, it means now, so if they were all third level and he was ninth level and he wasn't prepared to play a third level balanced. character, he's going to balance the party and the whole thing. You're not going to play with him anyway. Yeah. Now, the... When they come to play the game, it's quite elaborate, isn't it? They have all yeah, the candles, candles out. Yeah, yeah, Lots of candles right. yeah. and um, these figurines that yeah. they use. And the table yeah. is like a board, isn't it? It's like... Um, yes, it does look like... It, it does look like a board game, doesn't it? That's, it that's does. the interesting thing about it. Because obviously one of the... Going back to what we were saying earlier about people being puzzled about role-playing, one of the people puzzled by the fact there's no board. Yeah. Is one of the classics. Oh, would you play it around the board? No, there's no board. But actually, they do put a board there as if it's a board game. Yeah. And you think, oh, well, you got that wrong, haven't you? And so, the fellow with the fringe, he's the maze controller. That's right. And that's a good name for a GM, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Maze controller. But don't they have this weird thing where, and again, this, this is part of the thing about them trying to suggest it's sinister and failing to suggest it's sinister. Doesn't he have some speech where he says, oh, I am a god or some all-powerful god or something like yes, that? Yeah. <laughs> some speech about... I imagine you warmed to that. Yes, I did. But, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, he, he makes some speech about being an all-powerful god of the dungeon or something like that, doesn't he? Which is a bit peculiar, peculiar thing to say, you know. The whole setup of it reminded me very much of the approach that Kevin used to play, that we used to play mm. with, with his... Uh, his wife because they used to put candles out didn't they yeah and used to get disappointed when we didn't respond aye to uh, requests because you know, that's what they do don't they yeah they all talk they all start talking in a funny way don't they yeah, yeah. the, rev- the reviators are overtaking the Gorvilles and <laughs> aye so, yeah, they talk like that don't they and, <laughs> and that's how they wanted to play it so yeah. I was thinking maybe they saw do the voices and monsters yeah. Could have been, couldn't it? Do the voices. Do the voices. Say it as you would say it. Yeah. Aye. <laughs> but it's not good enough, is it, doing it that way? No. And there is what I now call the Ben Elton rule. Mm. And the Ben Elton rule, do you know what it is? It's something that we don't dress up or do dress up. Or do dress up. Do dress up. So it's a truth universally acknowledged that if role-playing games appear on any form of media... You have to cover the people who dress up. Yeah, yeah. You've got to move... You've got to... At some point, you've got to dress up. Because it looks boring, doesn't it? Even if you've got candles. Yeah. And that's the the thing, isn't it? That goes back to the the, the Ray Godwin video and and all those kind of things. You know, Ray Ray Godwin, who's now a 
is he an Elvis impersonator now? Yeah, Something like that, isn't yeah. he? Do you dress up? Yeah. yeah, do you dress up as Elvis? <laughs> yeah, you do, don't you? Anyway, um, it, it's that odd thing that, you, like you say, the media's desire to portray it as very, very weird or very, very sinister or whatever. And yet, in actual fact, everyone involved in it is not weird or sinister and ordinary people might just think don't really understand it think it's a bit funny but that's about as far as it goes but the media's got this desire to yeah yeah oh put someone in a wizard's hat on for god's sake so they so they dress up and go into these caves that he's discovered yeah yeah and for some reason i think he's wanting to i don't know cry for help when he went he discovered these uh these uh caves he goes down them and you have to say, it's a pretty elaborate setup. It's a bit like a treasure trap, isn't it? He's, yeah, he, it's elaborate, isn't it? It's a business opportunity there, really. Isn't yeah. It? yeah. A skeleton like, descends from nowhere with a torch in its mouth. Yeah. It's fantastic. But it, but again, kind of funny because if if the film, and I don't think the film does a good job of this, but if the film is trying to suggest that these games could drive you insane, it, it's LARPing that drives them insane. <laughs> Yeah, isn't it? It's yeah. not. It's not. It's not the game. It's not the round the turn. There's, there's a great divide between the larpers and the non-larp. It's going to go. Ah, well, see there you go. It's larping that drives you mad, yeah. isn't it? Not what we do. We don't do that. Oh no. I think you know? yeah. I think they're mixing up uh, Satanism with uh, basic health and safety risks. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> Just take more care. But it's in these caves, isn't it, where Robbie has his first... Yeah, his first episode. His episode. His episode, yeah. Where the Gorville appears. Mm. The, the Gorville, yeah. And it it looks like a cross between Orville and a snake, isn't it? Like yeah. A, yeah, like a scary Orville. <laughs> yeah. And he stabs the Gorville, which is relevant because the Gorville's not really there. That's but right. he has a knife. Yeah. Now, we're going to jump ahead a bit now. Because then it, it goes on for a bit too long, doesn't it? Well, he has like dreams and stuff, doesn't he? He dreams. Like, gradually ends up yeah. going, walk, going walkabout, doesn't he? And yeah. Disappears, doesn't disappears. he? Disappears. They, they think he's in the caves, but yeah. it doesn't, does it? He goes to New York, that's wandering yeah. around, thinking he's a priest on a holy mission. Yeah, Purdue. Yeah, Padu, Padu, Padu or something. Padu. Padu is his name. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, yeah. he sets out to uh, yeah. New York. And there's a few too many scenes of him wandering through Times Square. Yeah. And I was kind of spotting. I, think I saw where uh, Empire Strikes Back was on. Yeah, yeah, the cinema. Yeah, the cinema. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he's wandering. Ironic that such a bad film could reference <laughs> such a good one. Where you go. And he's wandering through. And it's a bit like, uh, like I said to you, it's a bit like a cross between Big and Travis Bickle wandering <laughs> through the streets. Big of, meets taxi driver. Yeah. <laughs> He's wandering through. I, I suppose with a, an expression that can only be described as a bit dumbfounded. Yeah, a bit puzzled. Yeah. Dumbfounded, yeah. He probably tapped into that um, mm. when he did Forrest Gump, you know, that kind of look of... <laughs> A, a kind of a distance between what's yeah. going on and the world around him. And he ends up in a back street, doesn't he? And he sees a Garville. Yes, he's attacked by a Garville, but, it, but it's not a Garville. It's it? a mugger. It's a mugger, yeah. Early yeah. 80s mugger. Yeah. And uh, stabs him. Yeah. 
Yeah. Is that before or after he sees the old man who says he's the king? It's like I, a, I think afterwards he's, he meets the old uh, homeless man, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, who says he's the king. So some gets confused about he's the king. He thinks he's a king and, yeah, gets confused. But it's all a bit, all a bit boring because you just yeah. think, well, he's just confused wandering around. Yeah, anyway, it, you know. it gets to the top of the World Trade Centre. They intervene. Yeah. Weird seeing the World Trade Centre. Yeah. That's a weird thing, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah, they intervene and stop him. He's about to climb over the side or something. So yeah. I'm quite sure why. But, you know. Yeah, because that, that, as well as being his brother's name, that was the Great Hall. There was, there was like yeah. a revelation, yeah. isn't it? They realised the Great Hall, it's the World Trade Centre. Yeah. Because it had a hall. Yeah. So, I think as a viewer, those revelations are not quite as exciting as they could be. Because <laughs> at that point, you would be a bit bored, aren't you? You've switched yeah. off a bit. I found it hard to concentrate on. Yeah. It's it boring, quite boring. That middle bit is a, it's a bit too long, isn't it? A bit yeah. too long. Right, we get the idea. Well, it's a boring, it's boring. And yet, in a way, that's the meat of the film, isn't it? Yes. I mean, the whole film is about someone who, who plays these games and goes mad and thinks he's a cleric. And But then when he when he's doing all that, it's a bit boring. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he, uh, he gets talked down and his friends help him, don't they? They help him get a moment of clarity. Yeah. And he's yeah. easy. And, they, and then it kind of fades, doesn't it? Yeah. And then there's a bit of a corder at the end. Yeah, like the epilogue bit where they go and visit him, don't they? And, and yeah. you think you think he's going to be all right, but of course he's not, is he? He's not because he's wearing very tight tennis shorts. He, he, is in, he looks like it's John McEnroe. So not only is he dressed as a cleric, he's dressed as a 1970s John McEnroe as well, isn't he? Yeah. Which is an odd choice. Of, what are they costuming for it? What's the lad about? And so he greets them, doesn't he? Yeah, uh, as, as Purdue. He as still Purdue. thinks he's Purdue, doesn't he? He's still in that world, isn't he? But, you know. And they could have said, oh, no, he's it, getting a relapse. But they don't, do they? No. They I... <laughs> Shall we play again? Aye, yeah, play again, no? Play again, we go play off. again. For the last for the last time. time. For the last time. Whatever that's supposed to mean. Yeah. Yeah. I say I'd odd that at the end of the last time. As if like what what, what are you suggesting? Why is it the last time you're playing? Yeah. So you go, Mazes yeah. of Monsters. We watched it so you don't have to. Yeah, and believe me, don't bother. Because it is it is a bad film. A bad film, but as I say, interesting that it doesn't really, it doesn't give, it doesn't kind of really take off the idea that the, these games are terrible. Even in the film, it doesn't really, doesn't no. really achieve that, does it? You don't really come away going, oh yeah, they played this game, it drove it drove him mad. No, I know his his brother going missing. That's what it was the trauma of it all. No, yeah. you know. <laughs> He, had a, he did have an issue there, you know. Well, maybe for the sequel. The <laughs> sequel. Good God. No. Appendix G! Welcome to Appendix G, a curated list of interesting stuff created by the Grog Squad. One of the longest-serving members of the Grog Squad is Clarky the Cruel, a.k.a. Kiha. Hello there, Clarky. Hello, Dirk. I think you were one of our first advocates on a podcast because uh, you used to run Dissecting Worlds. What was interesting about that podcast is a little bit what we were talking about 
uh, today, isn't it? It's taking some of those tropes and familiar places and ideas and uh, transforming them and uh, playing around with them. You've been developing a campaign, haven't you, around uh, Doctor Who and a specific area of Doctor Who. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So my favourite era of Doctor Who is the John Pertwee era, specifically when he was stranded on Earth. And he was running around doing Venusian Aikido, making gadgets in a workshop and being patronising to people in authority with a load of jumpsuited, um, British Army fatigued uh, guys in an organisation called the United Nations Intelligence Task Force, who uh, in the Pertwee stories were often, besides the three named characters and a companion, uh, cannon fodder. Now, it's not actually an original idea of mine. Years and years ago, a bunch of mates of mine were running stuff using Call of Cthulhu, where people played members of Unit when the Doctor wasn't around. And we had all kinds of weird stories, some set in Northern Ireland during the Troubles and on rotating GMs. In the aftermath of the award-winning Tenerife campaign, I'm running it with... Uh, just as a very open thing, so on Monday nights in my regular group, me, Matt, or the Grampus, Andy Horton, or Fet Butch, are all taking turns running scenarios. We've all got like two characters each, so we can chop and change what characters we play. I believe some knobhead from Bolton has run something set around John Lennon's long weekend, but there's there's a number of other GMs who have got things in development, and so it's just a nice setting because people understand the basic tropes and cliches behind it you can do other interesting things with it so andy's most recent scenario was to do with an alien weapon that was lost and we were trying to track down the alien weapon on this misput area of wolverhampton and it was a lot like the professionals episode the gun when a weapon goes missing and the agents are trying to find it before it does harm the current one i'm doing i've kind of made up a fictional country and it's got a bit of a James Bond aspect because they've gone overseas and they're undercover and things. So you can play around with a lot of different stuff. Great that it emerged really the initial idea in the Pertwee era from restrictions imposed on <laughs> it by budgetary constraints because he wasn't able to go around planets because they had cut the budget to it. So they stuck him on Earth for a, a period of stories. And some of those stories are really inventive, aren't they? Oh, yeah, you've got um, Inferno, say, where they go to a parallel universe, which I know now every series does that all the time. You know, they go to Inferno and there's a parallel universe, and the Brigadier and all that, the unit regulars, are members of a fascist force. It's implied it's that Britain fell to the Nazis, and this is like the post. And, and what happens with the incident they're dealing in our world, or the Doctor's reality, it goes horribly wrong because these fascists aren't listening to scientific advice. They're able to do things with, like, prehistory. So the Silurians and the Sea Devils, which are these prehistoric characters, very much echoing themes of, and I don't know if this was deliberate, but say H.P. Lovecraft and um, Robert E. Howard, of these primordial pre-human species that had the planet before us and want to have it again, um, although in a pulpier Doctor Who, more tea-time-friendly form. So, yeah, they, they really played around with a lot of stuff. They got bad commentary on environmentalism, uh, and they had the gorgeousness of Robin Delgado chewing any scenery that was incised as the master as well. But the thing about that budgetary restrictions, I think that was because they went to colour from black and white. 
I think it was also because the special effects technology was moving on so much. So when they did special effects, it was a bigger cost for them. And also the inflation in the 70s. Not that anyone today knows what inflation is like. So, so that all added to that to that impetus to, to be more inventive than perhaps they had in the past. What strikes me about it is that the stories had to come to the doctor rather than him discovering them. In some ways, that's what lends itself to the role-playing setup, doesn't it? I'm a big fan of mission-based campaigns. I mean, I know I've, I've done sandbox-based stuff. But even when you're doing a sandbox, it's good to have a clear idea, ideally generated by the players, of what they're doing. So I think if you've got this thing that you are investigating whatever agency you might have originally come from, it's the same concept as Delta Green, basically, except it's got a brown nylon shirt and you're driving a Ford Cortina, investigating this stuff and trying to protect the earth and keep the lid on it from a view of public panic. That's quite an easy box for a player character to think they're in and there's, and there's there's also quite a lot of flexibility with that so you can have some characters who are maybe a bit more ruthless or brutal you can have some characters who are much more by the book uh, and respectful of the rules you can have scientists you can have action men you can have drunken ex-tabloid journalists who are now press officers for the Department of Administrative Affairs and like schmooze people to get information. So you can play around, you can bring in all, all those tropes from the period television, comics, films as well. And we should say this uh, period of Doctor Who's um, at time, it was the height of the um, moral panic uh, about it, wasn't it? Uh, the moral guardians were up in arms about it. But John Pert, we going into Tom Baker. I mean, I know, I know. Certainly, there was a, there was a consideration, but it was too scary for kids. I can't remember the name of the story, but it's the one where he's running around in the Matrix, and Tom Baker's drowned at the end of an episode, or appears to be drowned at the end of the episode. And for Mary Whitehouse, it was the great moral campaign at the time. And we've actually got an NPC based on her in the in the unit campaign that Matt wrote up because we've got a list of on my blog a list of NPCs people have written up which are there for people to steal. But she she made a big thing about that and the general grotesqueness of the monsters. And some of them were really effective. My mind's eye, my earliest Doctor Who memory, and it might not be the earliest, but it's the one that stuck is the when the Jagarath is unmasked at the end of City of Death. And it can't be when it was first shown because I would have been too little to remember it. Um, but that sort of tentacly face with the single eye when the human in the disco shit in the sort of John Travolta disco suit of the Count, that really, really stuck in my memory. You know, compared to what Tom Rick and Morty or whatever now, it's, it's fairly anodyne. And we're talking about moral panics in this uh, episode. And uh, we, we've been saying that we were untouched, really, by the role-playing moral panic, uh, but you were directly affected, weren't you? Uh, yes. So I, in another Fish Fingers moment, I naively decided, oh, let's form a games club. Now, that met at a local secondary school. It didn't, it didn't last very long. It lasted a few months because at the same time, a bunch of LARPers found out we had a games club, turned up and showed off their rubber weapons, 
And then we'd lost half our membership to go chasing round Wirral Country Park in North Wales, whacking each other with latex. So, you know, we were kind of sabotaged there. Um, we formed this club. Um, and then out of the blue, and I think the first incidence of it coming to my attention was in the Daily Post, which was Liverpool's daily morning newspaper. Liverpool used to have two newspapers, the Liverpool Echo in the evening and the Daily Post in the morning. And it was it was on the centre spread, but it was at the bottom of the page, just like an inch or two. But there was a, a thing covering a vicar saying, you know, this is a dangerous game and blah, blah, blah. Vicar from New Brighton, danger in children's fun, blah, 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 blah. That then got picked up by the Wirral Globe, who uh, put me on their front cover. And me having excellent spin doctor advice, decided to stand on the front cover, wearing all black and a very grim expression with my shaven face. If only I'd thought to do the old Alistair Crowley freeway thing, if I was aware of it then, which I don't think I was. Uh, holding a copy of the DC Heroes Watchmen supplements in one hand. <laughs> and I can't remember what was the meal. It might have been a Sheba. might have been a Sheba, you know. <laughs> see Masters of Sheba, Greek Africa. But anyhow, he said his bit. I said my bit. And then years ago, a mate found it on Photofilm <laughs> the library and kindly photocopied it and shared it. So we've got it captured for prosperity. Um, I think also there was a little exchange on, it wasn't Roger Phillips, I think it was Tony Snow that was doing it, but like the tea time phone-in thing on Radio Merseyside as well. Because I was a sort of precocious child who'd come home at lunchtime and dial into that and devil give out my opinions so um, a, post, a poster boy for satanism in the world i was a poster boy for what probably explains the lack of take up of satanism in the general north Wirral area <laughs> yeah, yeah so it was it was a dark thing but i didn't have my house burnt i didn't like my mum didn't lose her job or anything it was uh i had the mickey taken at me at school and uh but when i was used to that and uh yeah fun and games well, thanks for sharing that with us, uh, Clarkie. And I'll have to come to your Monday group and uh, run my Lost Weekend uh, sequence for you. Yeah, yeah, do that. That'd be cool. I'll get me caught. Well, this time next week, Blythe, mm. we'll be in that there Leicestershire. That the Leicestershire. <laughs> Is it Leicestershire or Warwickshire? It's Leicestershire, I think. Shire, Warwickshire. Shire, Warwickshire. Well, we're going to rugby. First time I've ever been to rugby. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so better explain. We're going down and we're in a big house with... I hope it's a big house. Yeah, I know. There's a lot of us there. I hope it is a big house. It might not be a big house. Yeah. There's about... How many is there? There's about 12 of us, is there? No. There's... There's... 14. 14. 14. 14. Yeah. Yeah. 14. And it's the One Ring Road Trip. It's something that's gone on for a number of years where they uh, go away and they play Tolkien games with the One Ring. And I thought it would be a good idea to do a rival one, a Moorcock weekend, a Moonbeam Road Trip, no less. And I put put forward the idea that we did it at the same time. 
And then I thought it'd be good if we were in neighbouring properties so then we could have yeah. a, a, a water fight in the <laughs> garden. That could still happen. <laughs> and then we ended up having a big house together. Yeah. Mm. So this time next week, that's where we'll be. That's where we'll be this time next week. It'll be interesting. If nothing else. If nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> You've managed to bag the palatial suite. I'm on a camp bed. Yeah, no, it's all a bit of a misunderstanding. I, I just thought it was a single room going, but I thought, well, yeah, I'll have that then. Thanks. You won't let me come in with my soap and a rope and use your bathroom, will you? Does I, it have its own bathroom? I think it does, does it? Yeah, you've got, it? yeah. Blimey. Yeah. yeah. So I'm coming in with me soap and a rope. Oh, you're not. No, it's a private bathroom. <laughs> Tunnel lawn. <laughs> Tunnel lawn, <yeah. laughs> I'm in, I'm in the city of the beggars. Yeah, you're not soccer, aren't you? Yeah. Everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> Camp bed. They feel a bit guilty. But not guilty enough to relinquish. Sorry. <laughs> so we're um, <laughs> we're going to be playing more cocking games. We're going to start mm. with Elric at the End of Time, which is a board game produced by KSE yeah. back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So I'm quite looking forward to having a go at that. Yep. Can't get my head around the rules. I'm hoping that Mark... Um, Matt will be able to explain it. Yeah, he'll be able to work it out. Yeah, because um, uh, he's he's our war gaming thing. Yeah. I, I once threw him out of a balloon, but I regret that decision because he. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He he's a good. He's a good sort of source of rules. He people talk about rules lawyers, but but so you need someone like that, don't you? Right? you do. The table who can you can just look at them and they'll go, oh yeah, well it's minus twenty or something. Yeah. They know. They know. Yeah. That's what you need. Yeah. I used to think I was a rules lawyer, but I'm not. Re- I'm not really. By no. comparison, I'm an amateur. I'm a, yeah, he, he, Mark will sort it out. Yeah. Then we've got a quiz in the evening, so I've got to sort that out. Do sort that. A quiz out. Yeah, I'm going to do it as Jerry Cornelius's House of Games. I've got some ideas. <laughs> on that. And then in the morning, I'm doing my adaptation of Aegon yeah, with the Eternal you, Champion. Get you indie game hack. I know. Yeah. What's happened to you? Yeah. Oh, I've changed. You've, you have changed, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> so I'll perhaps talk about that a little bit later when I've done it, mm. and we'll see it, whether that works. Then in the afternoon, it's you. Yeah, yeah. DCC. DCC, Moorcock, Elric, Young Kingdoms kind of DCC. I won't say too much about it. No. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I could do, couldn't I? This will go out after we've been there. No, it's oh, wow. coming out before. Is it? Oh, yeah. right. In that case, and also you're sitting there, so I'm not going to give you any spoilers. No. It's I kind of been, it's sort of interesting that neither of us picked Stormbringer. There is actually a, an Elric role-playing game, but neither of us picked that. Yeah, there was a, there's a reason for that. I, I mean, we're playing Stormbringer. Yeah, we're we? playing it anyway in a yeah. different... A different uh... I do have a bit of regret that I didn't play Stormbringer yeah. because the thing with this hacking thing is that you have to create a game before you play it. Creative scenario. Yeah, I think both the games we've picked, though. I mean, Dungeon Crawl Classics is very, I think, very more cocky in the yeah. way it works. It does have a lot of those traits in it that, you know, are chaos, gods of chaos, and all that kind of thing. And the, the adventure that I've based it on, or part, based part of it on all of it, uh, Intrigue at the Court of Chaos, when you read it, it, it the names have been changed, but you read it, it's very much like an Elric kind of thing. Where you go, you get summoned to the court of chaos to do something for the lords of chaos, that kind of thing. You know, he's very, it is very more cocky. And Aegon as well, 
that's the same, isn't it? The idea that you draw on, you know, the gods and lords of law, lords of chaos. You just switch around the Greek gods and replace them with chaos. And Aegon encourages you to do that, doesn't it? One of the appendices to yeah. it, it does encourage you to say, you know, you can just fill in the blanks with different different gods. Yeah. In a yeah. different way. Uh, I wanted to have a go at playing Eternal Champion, so creating yeah. aspects of the mm. Eternal Champion gathered together to do this particular story together because of the published stuff that's out there it doesn't really allow you to do that it, yeah. you, you're playing people in the world of the young kingdoms yeah. or in uh, the tragic millennium whereas I think this I think it'll be interesting to play you know champions and uh, yeah. do those kind of things on that scale um, so I'll be interested to see how it works out mm. What's on your mind? What's your closing time chatter? Well, we just finished our first season of Pirates of Drinax, haven't we? We have, yeah. We just finished that break, summer break, and start again in kind of August, September time. Yeah. Um, it's very good, very entertaining. You do yeah, a good job. Yeah, thank you very much. No, it's very, it is a very entertaining thing to run as well. Um, and sort of gives you lots of... There's lots of insights into Traveller and how you can run it because it's a very narrative kind of way of running it, isn't it? It's yeah, not. It's definitely. not. Re- I mean, you could run it at, at a very granular level where you you worrying about every uh, the movement of people and initi- all these kind of detailed combat things. But I think you did. It would. It's a big campaign anyway. It would take forever, though, wouldn't it? Yeah, if you did it like that. Um, and I suppose it demonstrates how Traveller lends itself to that, you know. There's obviously because a scalable quality to it, Traveller, where you can do it in a more narrative, looser way, or you can do it yeah. worrying about ammo, worrying about what weapons, worrying about this, worrying about all the detail. You can do it that way as well for different types of adventures. I realise quite what a flexible system it is, really. Yeah. Yeah, and the whole setup of the planets, they're very interesting, aren't they? And uh, yeah. you're... Mission as play characters is engaging as well because you're privateers, but you're also working for yourself, trying to sustain yourself, but at the same time trying to further the cause of King Olaf. So you get, yeah, yeah, you know, we, yeah. you know, the, as the, agitators. Yeah, and, the idea is that you're you're kind of trying to create restart the uh, Star Dragon Empire mm. that used to exist. And, and restart and get planets on side so it's quite clever from that point of view because you've got all the excitement of pirates and getting money and robbing ships and doing all that but at, at the same time you're just about making alliances isn't it yes you know so. selling selling stuff to planets to keep them on side and creating havens for yourself and alliances that uh, ultimately will coalesce into being this em- emerging empire which yeah. is great fun really yeah I've enjoyed it. And we're creating our own level of mischief as well, aren't we? So Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the fun of it. It's fun for a games master because you you don't really know what the player's gonna do. There is all every scenario every session we've had, although I've got some ideas there and prepared something, there's always an element of uh uncertainty and improvisation given what you decide to do yeah. as players, which is really, really good. And it keeps it fresh, I suppose. And uh, like the end of all good uh, seasons, we learn from Charles Dickens, you know, they should end with a, a, a death 
or a marriage, and we had a marriage, didn't you we? Mar- you married an android. I married an android. You did marry an android. You went to a planet where robots can take a test to uh, gain gain rights, and she passed the test with flying colours. Because it's cleverer than all of you. And uh, you married her, yeah. Yeah, brilliant. In a chapel with a... <laughs> Robo Elvis. I Robo think. Elvis. Can you imagine Robo? Oh, it might be Ray Godwin. It might be Ray Godwin. Could have been Ray Godwin. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, anyway, Blythe, we better get packing. Yeah. Uh, we've got a trip to do. Mm. See you later. See you soon. There isn't another bit. Thanks to Joe for the interview and to Clarky for his Appendix G contribution. I'm not going to keep you for long. I'm uh, in need of a limb sip. So I'll just say Substack, Discord, Book Club and Virtual Grog Meet. And if you head to grognardfiles.com to fill in the blanks, Thanks for listening, and thanks to the patrons, old and new, for keeping us going. There's more GrogPod goodness coming next month. Pack your gyrojet pistol, because we're exploring new frontiers. Until then, adios, amigos.